Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Sophia, one of your hosts tonight. My name is Bilal, and I'm new to the podcast. Good to be here for my first episode. I'm Karen. Thank you for joining us tonight on the fifth episode of the sixth season entitled Growing Pains. And I'm Rebecca. In this episode, two authors show us how external growth of hair and plants can reflect internal growth of oneself and one's relationships. And I'm Leja. Now let's get into the first story of the night. This story is by an author that goes by the initials MN. MN is a recent graduate from John Jay and a former CNF student. After several semesters spent feeling absolutely lost, MN created her ideal major through the CUNY BA program. She was a committed member of the Muslim Students Association during her time at John Jay. MN discovered her love of creative writing in her final semester at John Jay. Though she doesn't know what's next in her career, she hopes to continue creative writing in some capacity, whether that's in school, professionally, or just for herself. Outside of stealing moments to read fiction, she could be found planting seeds, petting her cats, or appreciating a particularly majestic tree. Just a warning that this segment of the show discusses themes of abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Now, let's take a listen to MN's piece entitled, Too Much Fertilizer Can Kill a Plant. It's time for my daily visit with my plants. I pull out the aluminum tray that holds my pepper seedlings from the wire shelf to check them for water. The seedlings are in red 16-ounce solo cups which are $1.29 a dozen at the dollar store, way cheaper than buying seed starting trays. The cup holding my big, beautiful Tabasco pepper plant tumbles out of one of the corners, landing the pepper equivalent of face first. No, 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 no. I quickly scoop up the plant. I have big plans for these guys, plans that involve hot sauce in three months' time. I inspect the stem after refilling the cup with soil. It doesn't look broken, but it does look bendy. Definitely not how a pepper stem should look. I rifle through the craft drawer that my sister and I share and can only come up with a blue popsicle stick. (sighs) It'll do. So I push the stick into the soil and tie it to the drooping plant with a yellow rubber band that I quickly cut in half with a serrated knife. I'm so, so sorry, I whisper breathlessly as I finish off the double knot and pat the pepper plant on its crown. Please come back. Apologies don't come easy in this house, but it's much easier apologizing to peppers than it is people. (sighs) Last night, my two youngest siblings and I revised our chore schedule over dinner in an attempt to parent-proof them. We wanted to make it so that Amu and Abu couldn't keep making excuses to send my youngest brother away from washing the dishes. Let's change your washing day from Wednesday to Saturday, I said to my youngest brother. Yeah, then they can't say that I have school tomorrow, he said. My sister and I laughed along with him. You guys have a problem, my mom muttered in Bangla. 
That's how most of the arguments start in our house with a throwaway remark that isn't meant to bring up memories we aren't supposed to talk about. You try to sniff out issues where there are none, she added. She was talking about the time my sisters and I accused my parents of being easier on our brothers. We don't need to sniff anything out. The smell is already there. My youngest sister and I said this in unison, though in varying combinations of Bangla and English. My mom shook her head and moved the rice around her plate with curry-stained hands. You don't understand what it's like to raise kids. Every kid is different. They don't all listen the same way. You have to deal with different people differently. I knew she was talking about my brother, my other one, who was on the balcony grilling a steak and couldn't hear this conversation. You can't keep bringing up the past. I have five siblings, but for five years of my life, it was just three of us. Before the youngest two were born, it was me, my sister, two years older than me, and my brother, a year younger. Back then, my brother had been the definition of a terror, evidenced by the bite marks on my arm when I was three years old and the pictures of him with a tub of cold cream all over his face. When he got a few years older, he'd always get into fights with other kids at school and would even run away when our Qur'an and Arabic teacher came to our house for lessons. My mom's right. I don't know what it's like to raise kids. But I guess my parents don't completely know either since not even my dad, who's a psychiatrist, could always get it right. When I was seven, before we had a kitchen table and when we still ate on the floor sitting on top of a dasturkana, per Bengali custom, my brother begged my parents for a PlayStation Portable. He'd seen one a few days before on one of our trips to the Desi store in Jackson Heights, where my parents would buy Bengali groceries and we'd grab biryani at Aladdin restaurant and sweets as a treat. That was the only restaurant we'd eat at back then. And so, a few times a year, I would swing my legs beneath the laminated restaurant table and finally, briefly, feel like a character in the books I'd read about normal Americans, like Ramona and Beezus when their dad drove them to the nearest Whopper burger after payday. After a protracted struggle to pick up the rice with plastic forks, we would give up, wash our hands, and use our God-given cutlery to polish off the biryani. My dad would then order two dutja, one for himself and one for my mom, and they would carefully pour the steaming tea into styrofoam cups to give each of us kids a sip. The hour-long subway ride home from Jackson Heights was always exhausting, but oh, so worth it. Please let me buy the PSP, my brother pleaded. This conversation had been going on for three days already, so I ignored him and focused on picking out the spiky bones from my fish with my fingers. My older sister and I knew better than to ask for the latest toy that had caught our eye. That was for the other kids at school, the one who talked about their trips to the Bahamas after every school break and bought as many posters, pencils, and books as they wanted at the book fairs. I almost choked on my fish when my parents suddenly promised they'd get my brother a PSP, but only if he went three weeks without making a mess on his portion of the dasterkana. I shouldn't have been surprised, though, since this happened often. My parents offered him prizes for waking up on time, for completing his homework without complaining. I wouldn't have minded being bribed with a book or five for those things either. I looked around my plate where only three pieces of rice had fallen on top of the red mat. I picked them up one by one with my left hand, since my right hand was covered in dal, until the area was spotless. But I knew I would never be rewarded for something so simple. That was 13 years ago, but... Some things never change. 
I got up to wash my plate at the kitchen counter. You can't just tell us not to forget, I said. This was somewhat untrue. Most of the times, I do forget. I forget these seemingly insignificant instances that open up a well of resentment in me. Your childhood shapes everything about you, I continued with words I'd learned from years on Twitter. It determines your entire personality. You can't just tell us to forget this stuff. We never treated you unfairly, my mom insisted, speaking for both herself and my dad. We just raised you differently because you all needed different things. My youngest brother and sister ate their rice silently. We barely even disciplined you and your sister because we didn't need to. We didn't hit you that much, like other parents. I stared at her slack-jawed, not wanting to bring up the time in third grade that she slapped me across the face for taking too long in the shower. She was in denial. I placed my plate on the drying rack and walked back to my room. My older sister said something and I said, okay. I pretended to watch a YouTube video, ignoring the combination of guilt and self-righteous anger stirring in my throat. I drummed my fingers on the side of my laptop. Of all the things I could hold against my parents, the one thing I would never say is that they neglected our religious education. I put my laptop down next to me on the floral bedspread and walked out the door to the kitchen, ready to put all those lessons to use. Ammu, this is why the Prophet said to never treat your kids differently, because problems like this happen, I said. My mom probably thought the problems like this referred to the argument itself and kids talking back to her. Not the way my parents raised us, but I didn't care. I looked at her from the doorway of the kitchen, and I knew she wouldn't have a response to this. If I'd had more presence of mind, I would have cited the hadith where he reprimanded a parent for giving one child a gift and not the other. Fear Allah and treat your children fairly, the Prophet had said. Maybe I would have also mentioned that the Prophet never hit a woman, child, or animal. But... I didn't like the way my voice had started to waver, so I'd kept my lips together. And when it felt like my eyes would betray me too, I stalked back to my room. It was my day to wash the dishes. So after a few more YouTube videos, I walked back to the kitchen, ignoring the fact that my mom had already washed everything for me. I found a stainless steel pot and scrubbed at it until the hot water turned my hands red. My mom put the rag that she was using to wipe the counter down, and placed her damp hand on my shoulder, looking for a hug. I squirmed away, but she wouldn't let it go. Amu, I know we've done many things to hurt you. I'm sorry, she said. I didn't look at her, didn't return her hug, just gave one final shrug of my shoulder so she'd let go of me, and walked back to my room. Every morning, when I walk into the kitchen to fry an omelet or toast a bagel, Amu turns to me from her Arabic notebook and greets me with an embrace and a greeting of peace. Assalamu alaikum. And on the nights where I stay up later than my parents, doing my homework or pretending to, she walks into my room, hugging her three daughters goodnight before bed. During the day, she might put her arms around me when she sees me studying, or when I hand her a cup of dutja that I boiled for half an hour on the stove to get it just right, or for no reason at all. My mom hugs me every day, and I always return it. After all, I have no reason not to. Later that night, my sister and I recounted in soft voices the hurt we sometimes carried when we forgot to forget, vowing to raise our own children differently. I knew my parents probably had similar thoughts, especially since after my youngest brother and sister were born, they slowly realized that hitting your kids is probably not the healthiest way to raise them, even though their own parents had disciplined them that way. 
I wondered if my mom could hear our intermittent giggles from where she was praying her night salah right outside our room. Being a parent is scary, I said, playing with the loose edge of my embroidered quilt from Bangladesh. No matter how hard you try, your kids will find something to hold against you. My sisters quietly agreed. Now, I brush my hands over the top of my pepper plants. They don't get any wind inside the house, so I have to disturb the stems to make them grow stronger. I run my finger over and under every leaf, checking for insect eggs. Satisfied that there are none, I move the cups which are still damp to another tray and take the remaining plants to the kitchen to water them. Mashallah, my mom says when she sees my Modi's plants. If there's one thing Bengalis appreciate, it's a nice hot chili pepper. She watches as I fill the tray with water, so the plants can soak up the moisture without getting their leaves wet. When we first moved into this house from our small apartment, back when I thought I had a black thumb, my parents had been the ones to fill our house with tomatoes, peppers, squash, and gourds from the garden. This year, though, I ordered two LED shop lights online and instructed my parents not to purchase a single seedling from Home Depot or the nursery down the street. Growing a plant from seed, my mom says, is like raising a child. Some of my pepper seedlings look yellow, so I dribble a little bit of fertilizer into those cups. I don't want the fertilizer to fall into any of the other cups if they don't need it. Too much fertilizer can kill a plant too. She continues, you have to give them enough sun, water, and food. You have to protect them from the wind. I pour a little bit more water into the aluminum tray. The plants will soak up the water from the holes I drilled into each of the solo cups. When you plant them out, she says, there might be weeds, so you have to remove the weeds. You can't let any dangerous animals around them. Her words peter out as she checks on the fish cooking on the stove. You want them to grow up strong and healthy. I pick the tray up with both arms to return to my little brother's room, where he'd let me set up grow lights on his shelf. My mom wipes her hand on her cotton silver kameez and puts both her arms around me. My arms are full with my plant babies, so I don't hug her back, but I lean my head in for a moment. Her dress is soft and her skin underneath it warm. Then it's time to flip the fish again and to get these pepper plants under the light. Oh, wow. What a piece, right? Thank you so much, Eben, for sharing this piece with us. This piece is so visual, taking us from scene to scene between you and your Tabasco plants to scenes of you and your siblings upbringing with your parents and reflections on being children who are, quote unquote, getting parented. There is this string of moments that stick out to me, which is most demonstrative of how you used your writing to show some of the more complicated relationships between observing parenting and doing parenting. You remember speaking with your sisters about how you will be different and better parents than your own, and also acknowledge that sometimes, no matter what, children will always find something to hold against you. From there, you immediately cut to, quote unquote, disturbing your pepper plants, fussing with their leaves because it's what's best for them not to give bug eggs the chance to grow. And I imagine that if the plants could talk, they would say, "Ugh, I hate when my mom does that. (laughs) 
I wanted to ask if this moment of you, quote unquote, parenting was acting as just that you fussing with the plant as if it was your child. And broadly, what is the significance of the inclusion of your plants in this piece? Thank you for that question. So I think it was really my mom who helped me see the significance of that scene um, as it happened in my real life, because she was the one who made those comments while I was, you know, fussing about with my plants, as you say. Um, she noticed like how I was taking care of them. And my, my parents would notice that, you know, every day I would check up on them. I would water them. I'd, I attached a timer to the light so that it would turn on and off every day at the same time. <sighs> And they'd noticed all of that um, for weeks and weeks. And so when my mom made um, that comment, sorry, I had background noise. That's okay. When my mom made that comment, um, I kind of realized that I was doing the same, not the same thing, but you know, the same concepts, disturbing mm -hmm. my plants so that they would grow up stronger. Um, and this isn't to say that everything that they did was correct, but mm -hmm. I was doing these things to my quote unquote kids who, yeah, they didn't have feelings, like they couldn't hold anything against me, but I still understood what was best for them, right? Right. Um, wow. But yeah, it really made me view like parenting in a different light. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that those conversations can be tricky sometimes because those words are also used to justify abuse um, mm -hmm. and violence, which I mentioned in my piece mm -hmm. as well, like the concept of, you know, disciplining your kids with physical violence. Right, right, um, but right. yeah, I think that is a really tricky line and I guess props to all the parents that are figuring it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did yeah. you ask a second like part to that question? Um, no, uh, the significance of the inclusion of your plants in the piece, but I believe that you covered it very, very yeah. well, unless there's something else you'd like to add to it. No, I think that's it. Okay, I have to just say, I think that's a really insightful thing to pick up on, because if I was doing that, I don't know if I'd pay attention to all like the psychology behind it. So I think that goes into the person that you are. And I just want to say to you that I think that this piece is beautiful. And I remember my first time reading it back in when we took creative nonfiction together. And my mind was blown by the metaphor that you pull off in this piece. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but how beautifully you do it and your writing, I think it's very good. So something that I picked up on is the layers of motherhood in this story. Um, on one level, it's your mom and you and your siblings. And then on another, it's you and your plant babies. And then I even see another one that you reserve for the future. And that's for you and your sisters. And like Rebecca said, you vowing to raise your own children differently. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if there's anything that you've learned or maybe some kind of wisdom that you can share with us that you want to take into your own parenting experience one day. Oh, my God. Are you guys seriously asking me for parenting advice? <laughs> <laughs> um, I genuinely don't know I think I have like a lot more doubts and fears about parenting than I do advice mm -hmm. um and I also to touch on you know what Rebecca asked about the plants and also the title of my piece which is too much fertilizer um my mom that was one thing that she didn't mention how I was fertilizing some of them and not the others mm -hmm. but after she had made that comment and I was like kind of still dealing with the repercussions of this argument that we had had I was really upset at my parents for a few days Mm -hmm. um I realized 
that, hey, I'm giving some of my plants nutrients, not the others. Uh, whereas I thought it was super unfair that my parents, you know, raised like uh, raised me and my siblings with different parenting strategies, um, some of which backfired and caused resentment. Right. But the their reasoning and behind doing it, you know, was there. So, um, God, I forgot the question. Hold on. Take your time. What was the question again? Any kind of wisdom that you think or you know you want to take with you right now. Um, and I think I also, you go. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I think it's totally like valid to not know. Like that's another yeah. layer to this answer is that like we're all kind of figuring it out as we go. Yeah, so. and I don't know if we'll ever know. I think, I think yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't have my own advice to give, obviously. I know that even though my parents, you know, did whatever they did with the best of intentions, it still left resentment. Mm -hmm. And so I know that in in some cases, uh, in terms of parenting, I wouldn't take guidance from them in in certain aspects. You know, of course, they've done a lot right and well. And I don't Mm -hmm. have my own advice to give, but where I take guidance from, which my parents also raised me with, is religion. And so I know like the principles and values, maybe I don't, I don't exactly know how I would enact them into successful parenting. Um, Mm -hmm. But one of the things that the prophet said about raising kids is like, don't ever treat them unfairly. If -hmm. you give, if you show, you know, one of them attention, you have to show them all equal attention. If you give one of them a gift, you should give everyone else a gift, the same, you know, a gift of equal value or like the same gift, just so they don't feel that kind of favoritism. And I think that it sounds like something so small, but this piece is really made up of tiny pieces and Mm -hmm. and these like really small, insignificant memories that stuck with me and that just rise every time I, you know, get into an argument with my parents. Right. Um, And they created such a deep well of resentment that I don't know if a conversation can resolve, right? Like my parents and I have had these conversations over and over again. We still Mm -hmm. have these arguments sometimes, even though. I ended up hugging my mom in that piece, but we still had to like go through life as mother and daughter. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, I think it's really the little things I know. I know the outcome that I want for my kids and our relationship, but I really don't know how to get there. So Mm -hmm. I guess I don't really have an answer for you. (laughs) It does sound a little bit MN like you realize that there's something to what your mom was saying Mm -hmm. about that different entities need different things at different times. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you yeah, definitely that as a parent, but it seems like you do see some sort of wisdom in that approach. Yeah. And I think that's what gave me pause to answering Sophia's question, because I guess I could have said, treat all of your kids equally, but then like, how would I deal with it if my kids are totally different? And some of them are you know, I mean, everyone has different like learning styles, attention issues. And there was also a lot that I didn't understand as a kid in terms of like, you know, neurodivergence, et cetera. Right. There's a lot that I didn't understand and there's still a lot that I have to learn. So um, it's, it's really tough to think about. Yeah. yeah okay. But out. the thing is, I think that I can see very clearly that you're open to learning and mm-hmm. I think that's the best type of parent. So yeah, I can tell that sure. you have like the insight here and I could see it through your story. And I think you're going to be a great parent one day. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. Thank you. It's not even just that. It's the level of, um, you know, introspectiveness that you have when you 
um, you know, come to deal with the situation, like the one where your mother was treating your brothers, where you mentioned that your mother was treating your brothers, you know, differently than you and your sister. Right. And, you know, you felt that you felt sort of slighted in a way that no matter if you did the same thing, or if you did the best that you could in any situation, that regardless of what it was, or what you did, or what happened, your mother still treated your brother better if you did the same thing, like with, um, you know, I come from a Desi background as well. So a lot of it hit home. We're like the Duster Khana and like just the parenting style and the whole lifestyle thing, because I saw a lot of that in my own household. And I think a lot of people of, you know, Desi background or similar backgrounds see a lot of this type of parenting style. It's like it's mm-hmm. contagious among Desi families. So, you know, I noticed that, you know, you mentioned throughout your piece that you're, you and your sister were mistreated and it was just a really common thing. And, you know, it, it hit home for me. But, you know, I wanted to ask that, you know, you, you mentioned how you're mistreated and you mentioned how your sister's mistreated and that your, that your brother, specifically in that section with the brother asking for the PSP, that your brother asked for a PSP and, you know, your parents said, oh, if you read a certain amount of books or clean, keep your portion of the Dastarkhana clean, that you'll get the PSP. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the piece, you confronted your mother about like the unfairness about stuff like this and mentioned doing so multiple times. Um, it makes you know us wonder if after writing this piece, did you ever show your parents like the story um, or think about doing so? Mm-hmm. Have your parents tried to see things from your point of view or is this still like a work in progress? And just to follow up, like after that, did your mm-hmm. brother ever get that PSP? <laughs> <laughs> So I'll answer the easier question first. Yes, my brother did get the PSP, of course, as he always does. <laughs> um, no, I would never show my parents the story or anyone in my family. Um, there's a reason I'm staying anonymous for it as well. I'm like also terrified that someone in my family is going to overhear me. And I think it's not because I say I say anything new in the story. Like like I said, we rehash these arguments, yeah. you know, every so right. often in my family. I think it's because my story has such a level of emotional vulnerability that I don't feel like I can share it. Like when I was reading the story, um, I was starting to get emotional and my voice was shaking and that was really embarrassing for me. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so yeah, I don't know. It's, It's not that I can't be vulnerable with my parents. I just think that this is something so sensitive that also involves them. Right. And I also know that these conversations sometimes hurt them as well, because like I yeah. said, I know that they did their best. Right. right. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to see them hurt. Um, I think. I don't know. I never even contemplated sharing this with them. So I'm like having all sorts of thoughts, <laughs> you know, maybe if they realize that yeah. I understand mm-hmm. in a way why they did the way they did. Um, yeah maybe it would have a positive effect, but I'm not ready for that kind of. Yeah, no, I, 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 can, I can understand your apprehensiveness because like, I know that this type of, these type of situations um, come with a lot of judgment, especially yeah. when like you try to share them with family or have like come to an impasse with like, you know, any of the situation and you try to get like a solution out of it. And mm-hmm. because they see family, they're just very traditional. Some of them set in their ways. It's hard to try to, you know, find a solution because some people are hard to work with yeah well yeah but I wouldn't say that 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 fear of judgment is why I'm not sharing it um I think this just is taking me back to when I wrote the piece and 
when I wrote the piece, it started as a micro essay. So that's a sort of mini assignment for the creative nonfiction class. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wrote that micro a few days after I had this argument, actually, but I was a mess of emotions. Mm -hmm. And that's why I wrote about it. um, Because we'd had that argument, because Mm -hmm. my mom had made that comment about the plants, right? Because I just read A Place for Home, A Place for Us, which is a novel by Fatima Farheen Mirza, I believe that's her name. And Bilal, you mentioned like how this is a common occurrence in Desi families. That's a novel about a Desi family. And it was like the exact same thing as what was happening in my life. It made me so furious. It made me cry. (laughs) I was so upset. I was like, this is just such injustice. Um, Probably not that big of an injustice in the grand scheme of things. But anyway, Uh, I was really upset. Right. But also, (laughs) I think that was the first time my mom apologized to me about So that's why I wrote it. I don't think I would have been able to write it if that hadn't happened because I was afraid of the judgment, not from my family, but from my classmates, for example, about, you know, my family being backwards or even the fact that my parents used to hit us. That was something that I was really scared to share um, until I saw things like that being written about in fiction, like the novel that I mentioned, and also our classmates sharing these really vulnerable pieces as well. That made me feel safe to share something like this. So mm-hmm. I don't think I'm afraid of judgment from my parents. I think like I've said, I've made all the arguments that I make in my piece to them. Yeah. Um, and I want to be fair to them, right? It's not like they're completely closed-minded and yeah, yeah. Right. stuck okay. on the ways of their past. Like they acknowledge that, okay, we were raised this way. We thought we were doing the right thing, but it wasn't right. right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah it's, yeah, it's not the judgment from them. It's holding. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. So lastly, Emin, uh, you might have touched on this before, but we wanted to give you an opportunity that if there's anything that you would like your listeners to specifically take away from your story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I want to preface this by saying that um, I definitely don't mean to excuse any abuse with what I'm about to say, but Um, I think sometimes we tell ourselves and tell others that someone you love can't possibly hurt you or would never hurt you. We say that a lot to kids who, you know, have parents who use violence, et cetera. Um, And I don't think that's true. And I think, well, I think I would just say to maybe give grace for the, to the people that you can do that for. Um, Of course, there could be abusive or toxic situations where you just have to get away from the person or your family, et cetera. I totally understand that. But I also think that in life, you know, when you're trying to figure things out, you're going to inevitably knock against the people that you love and hurt them. Um, And that doesn't mean that love and hurt can't coexist in the same place. And I would especially say that um, to keep that in mind for kids of immigrant parents, or, you know, kids from parents of other backgrounds. And I don't mean to say that, got some disclaimers. I don't mean to say that like immigrant parents don't know how to be healthy parents or that, for example, working class parents don't know how to be healthy parents. Of course they exist, but, you know, not everyone has access to certain levels of education that are necessary. Or even if they're educated, like I said, my dad's a psychiatrist, they're just not privy to certain conversations. And I say in the piece that, you know, I learned the words that I was throwing at my parents from Twitter. Um, And my parents are not on Twitter. Like, 
-hmm. they don't know these words that give me these rationalizations and make me so angry, right? So um, I just think have grace for people who are trying to do their best in a world that doesn't resemble the world that they grew up in. And they're trying to love you in the way that they were shown love, even if it wasn't healthy. Um, and try to use that to move forward and, but also, you know, have these conversations with them. Um, mm-hmm. That was a lot of rambling. I don't know. Oh, it was perfect. It was, it was. It was very clear. Thank you. With that, thank you so much, Evan, for bringing us the story, for taking the time to have this interview with us and for yeah. sharing your insightful thoughts. We really enjoyed listening to you and you've really given us a lot to chew on and hopefully for our listeners too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This story is by a new author to the podcast, Natalie Salazar-Garcia. Natalie Salazar-Garcia is a joyful and witty 22-year-old recent graduate from John Jay College. She majored in criminal justice and minored in fraud examination and creative writing. She's been in love with reading since she was a child, finding comfort in imaginary worlds. She also used reading to gain a better understanding of the English language so she could translate better for her immigrant parents. She can also be found sipping on a cup of tea and carrying a great book bag filled with four different journals and a dozen cute pens. Let's take a listen to Natalie's story entitled Cabello Mantenido. I am sitting in front of my least favorite mirror. It's brand new. It has four drawers and a space under it for a chair. My dad says it's called a vanity mirror, but I call it Gerald. My chubby seven-year-old face is staring at the mirror, looking at its own reflection. I play with my square-shaped glasses, taking them on and off, wondering if I look better without them. My chubby face looks like it could be a square shape itself, like the glasses. It's square on square too much. I push my cheeks down, wondering if losing weight would mean my face would look more round, like McCall's pretty face. McCall is Ecuadorian, and her skin tone is only a shade lighter than mine, and she is shorter than me. She also has more money than me, a lot more. I play with my hair, trying to see if bangs would suit me and make me look like Emily. She looks like Tinkerbell, small and cute. I look at my hands, wondering why my brown skin can't be as pale as Ashley's skin. She's Dominican, too, but you can't tell unless she tells you. No one's ever surprised that I'm Mexican. McCall and Emily and Ashley are part of the popular group. They walk around the school with a new book bag every week, and they get to have fancy birthday parties at school. And they're always talking about a new episode on Disney Channel. I don't know what that is. I only watch telenovelas with my mom at night. The girls are mean, but McCall is the worst. And the other two do everything she says. Sometimes I try to figure out what I can do to get them to like me, but it seems like nothing is ever going to work. Most days they just make fun of me to my face. On other days, it's behind my back. I hate those days. I end up wondering what they say about me all day. I never tell my mom, though. I never tell anyone. For school, everyone wears the same uniform. The same stuffy white dress shirt, navy blue skirt, itchy stockings, and dark blue sweater. The one thing that's different for everyone is the black shoes. The better the shoes, the cooler you are. 
Macaulay and Emily usually wear black flats with little bows. Ashley always wears black Converse. I wear whatever black shoes are on sale at Payless. Today, like every day before, I'm waiting for my mom to finish dressing my brother so she can do my hair again. I am ready with the rubber bands, the water spray, and the slightly lighter than mauve brush with the pointy teeth that scrape my scalp. I hear her yelling at my brother to stand still, and I can already feel my impending doom. Whenever my mom's in a bad mood, I know my braids will be so tight, my eyebrows will go higher than normal, and my face will feel as though somebody sprayed five cans of hairspray on it. Ya tienes todo! Si, mamá. I gulp, nervous. I move to sit on the squeaky chair with the bent leg. While she looks for the hair gel, I tried to hide. I hate when she uses it gel, because it makes my hair feel so stiff and oily. She finds it in the third drawer, behind the big box filled with the photos she took before she had me. Sometimes I go through those photos, tracing over her figure. In some photos, she's at the beach, standing still. She looks so skinny at 21. So much has changed since then. Her eyes still look the same, though. Distant. In others, she is at a birthday party. She sits on a puffy brown couch with friends to her left and my father on her right, his arm around her. She looks happier in these, maybe because she is with people who remind her of home back in Mexico. Or maybe she's just happiest with the man who protected her while crossing the border. She only has one photo in a protective sleeve. The one where she stands barefoot in the living room with her hair loose. Her hair barely touches the ground. One or two more inches and she could use it to sweep the floor. She is proud of this hair. I think it makes her feel beautiful. Soon, the scalp scraping brush rips through my waist length hair with intense speed. Though it doesn't seem like it, I know that she does try to keep from ripping at least some of it out. I know that because my hair is her pride and joy. Her favorite thing about me. No one other than my mother ever touched my hair. At least, not until I started the first grade. Finally, it's ready. She parts it in four different sections, quickly checking for any split ends or imperfections. I silently pray her eyes miss any. Otherwise, she'll make a fuss. She'll say, Ash, tienes que comer más vegetales para que tu cabello no se haga feo. Before taking out her silver scissors and cutting away at select strands, making me late to school. Naturally, my hair is a mess. Some days it's wavy and other days it's curly and tangled together as if purposefully rebelling against my mother herself. The entangled mess may try with all its might to resist her. But in the end, she will win. I want to tell it. She always wins. She runs her fingers through it one last time to make sure there are no knots left that could interrupt the styling. Satisfied, she grabs a handful of green gel and spreads it from root to tips. Then she braids my hair with dancing fingers. Each knot gets tighter and tighter, and my eyes fight hard not to cry. My mouth tries hard not to make a sound. Even a small peep is a complaint in my mother's ears. The second her hands release, I let go of my breath. My little body slowly gets up from the chair, trying to put as much distance between me and Gerald. 
She reminds me not to let anyone touch my hair as we walk to St. Sylvester, where I am in the second grade. She doesn't know that the girls at school don't care for her rule, no matter how many times I tell them. But I nod in response. I know the girls in my class will touch my hair and tease me about it. They'll compare it to the Indian girl's hair. Pull both of our braids to make sure our hair is real. I swallow hard. When I get to the auditorium, I wait by the teacher because I know no one will dare bother me in front of Miss Belen. The Indian girl has the same idea. We cower there, waiting for the lineup. She stares at her chunky white sneakers while I flip through my science textbook. But during gym class, there is nowhere to hide. Ashley and Emily push us against each other and tell us to undo our hair so they can see whose is really the longest. The Indian girl quickly undoes her hair because she knows how to braid it back together. She looks at me while she waits for me to follow their instructions too. I don't because my mother will be so mad to see her work undone. I can't. I have no way of recreating her masterpiece. No way to pretend this didn't happen. I stand still, forcing myself to keep my trembling hands on my hair to protect it from their yanking. The girls claim it's not fair, that I shouldn't just let the Indian girl show her hair alone. I think they have a point. I shouldn't leave her alone to deal with them, but I can't bring myself to pull off the rubber bands. Emily moves closer and gently tries to push my hand away, telling me, you'll look better with your hair down. You look ugly with your hair always up. I want to yell to tell her to back away from me because I don't like anyone touching me. But I don't. I weigh her words against my own thoughts. I want to look pretty like them. I have the mom say, she looks so pretty, to my mother instead of, she looks like she's smart. Even though I can barely get on the honor list like the rest of my class. Slowly, I move my hands up, ready to remove my braids. I can always ask one of the fifth graders at lunchtime to tie my hair in a ponytail. They love to do each other's hair, so why not mine? Then I can just tell my mom that they hurt because they were too tight. That's why I let them down. Yes, that will work. Right? Mom will still be mad, but at least they'll stop bothering me. I'm going to do it. If I do, then... Maybe they'll finally let me be friends with them. And maybe they're right. Maybe I will look prettier if I let down my hair loose like they do. But before I can pull off one of the rubber bands, Ashley says, It doesn't matter. Even if the loser lets it down, she'll still look the same. Like a mole. McCole motions her to shut up. But she has said enough. I stand there, frozen. I hadn't noticed that McCole had been there the whole time. Whatever she says, goes. I stare at her, mainly at her shoes, hoping that God can bless me with laser eyes in a second and let me burn her feet off. Eventually, they get distracted by another girl who started running her fingers through the Indian girl's hair. They circle around her with fingers still glue-crusted from art class. I walk away, thinking I'm safe, but I'm not. Suddenly, my gym teacher calls to me, Natalie, come here. I slowly move towards her, wondering if I'm in trouble. Turns out, I have gum stuck on the back of my braids. One of them must have put it there when I wasn't paying attention. Mrs. Soto 
tries to take it out for me, but she can't. The watermelon red gum is stuck around a huge chunk of hair. When it doesn't work, she says she has to call my mother. My mother? No. No anything but that. I'd rather chew the chewed gum than call my mother at work. Please, please don't. I want to scream. Instead, I say, no, it's fine. It's really not a big deal. But we're already walking to the principal's office. I try again. I'm sure the nurse can help me get it out. But she doesn't budge. How did you notice the gum on me, but not how the girls were surrounding me? I want to ask, but we're already at the principal's office. She passes me the phone and waits by my side. On the second ring, I hear my mother asking who's there. Es Natalie, mamá. A ver, pásame la maestra. I do as I am told, and hand over the old gray phone. As Mrs. Soto explains the situation, the knots in my stomach get bigger. She passes the phone back to me, and my mother yells, wondering if I even listened to her in the morning. ¿Qué santo Dios hiciste? ¿Qué te dije en la mañana? ¿No escuchas o qué? ¿Andas masticando chicle en la escuela? ¿Dónde pinche conseguiste el chicle? She thinks I'm deaf because I clearly didn't listen to her in the morning. Worst of all, she thinks I snuck gum to school. She demands an explanation. I want to tell her what happened, explain that the gum isn't mine, and tell her about what happened in gym class, that I didn't mean to mess up her work. It happened when I was trying to get away from them. But I know that if I tell her the truth, she'll pull up to the school in her maid uniform, demanding the teachers punish the girls. She will raise hell with everyone involved, not caring for the consequences I'll have to deal with later. But then again, if I don't tell her, I'll have to make up a good lie to cover it all up and I can't lie through my teeth. Not like Ashley. I can never get my voice to cooperate with my brain when I try to lie. Finally, I give her an answer. The truth. I fear my mother more than I fear popular girls. And now, maybe they'll fear her too. Wow. Natalie. Wow, wow, wow. That was great. That was so beautiful. What a powerful last line, huh? Seriously. Yes. Yep. And Natalie, it's so good to have you here. We're so excited to have your story on the podcast. Definitely. And I want to start off by saying that I remember when we took creative nonfiction together that you were always one of the warmest and most insightful people in the room. And it was obvious when I was reading the story that you were that way as a kid too, which is why my heart broke so much for you as you describe what it's like to be bullied in this piece. And one thing I want to draw attention to that you do really well is that you have this expert balance of like this serious grown-up tension on one hand and then some really funny lines on the other. So for example, you nickname your least favorite mirror, mirror Gerald and you say you'd rather chew the chewed gum than call your mother at work. So both really good and made me laugh. Oh good. But both of these lines actually stand in for something that's way deeper, like deeper themes in your work which I picked up were your relationships with both your hair and your mother. 
So something that I want to get your thoughts on um, from the kid that we read about in this story to who you are today, I'm wondering how your relationship with both your hair and your mother has developed over time. Um, so, well, my relationship with my mom is a lot better. Um, I'm able to talk to her um, about everything that happens back then um, and unpack it. Um, it pretty much caused a lot of emotional stress because I never got it out. And now she's very supportive. Um, she's always there for me and my mental health um, issues. And my relationship with my hair has changed. As a child, I resented it and I hated it because it was mm -hmm. what I felt like the only thing my mom cared about when it came to me. Mm -hmm. um, I had it long, I always had it like waist length. And when I turned 16, I cut it off and bleached it for the first time ever. And she was furious, mm -hmm. of course. Um, but since then, uh, I haven't been able to grow it out as long as I would like it to be because um, some medical issues came up. Mm -hmm. But now as an adult, I want to grow it out again because um, I see it as more of like a connection with my heritage and with my mom. Um, I can see why she thought it was very special um, because after having like being able to communicate with my mom, um, I found out the reason for it is because um, we're also Native American, um, Mexican Native Americans. So um, it's always been part of our heritage. It's been considered uh, part of femininity. And it's also been part of like, it holds wisdom and it holds strength for us. And now as you can see, I, I have short hair, um, but I am trying to grow it out longer. So maybe one day it does longer. But the love that I have for my hair now is much different. And the love I have for my mom is a lot bigger. Aw, that's so sweet. Oh, and nice. by the way, yo, your hair looks beautiful. Beautiful. I love it. Natalie, is, um, from what you just said, beautiful response, by the way, but from what you just said, I just thought of the, the quote uh, that healing doesn't happen overnight, but growth does. So it's like, the more you started to love your hair, the deeper the connection you had to your mom. And like you just said, the deeper the connection you had to, to your um heritage. So it's like the more growth you experienced throughout the year, throughout the years with your hair and your mom helped you to heal those old wounds that you um mentioned in your story. Right, right. Yes. Definitely. And like I have to say, like literally when you when you said that, when you said like, you know, that your mom like valued your hair growing up. And even throughout this piece as I was like reading the scenes of like you sitting there and like as she would like put your hair into braids and stuff, it it was entirely reminiscent of like my childhood. Mm -hmm. Um and like when you were talking about how, you know, it it felt like the way that your mom connected to you, it felt like something that she valued in you. And it's like, well what about me? You know, like why is it that this thing is so important to you? Like when it's mine, et cetera. And like Majazo and I were like messaging because you said that you grew up and cut your hair and bleached it. And that's exactly what I did too. <laughs> that same thing like happened to me where that was like, mom, my mom cried. <laughs> my mom cried. My mom cried and like my dog was there and she was like, can you believe it? She was like talking to the dog. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, can you 
you believe like what what your your I don't know what my daughter has done, um, um, and also like I I um my family's from El Salvador. I was born in El Salvador, and that is just part of many cultures in Latin America. Is like hair is so important for better or for worse, and like sometimes it's really like awful awful ways, and sometimes it's in ways like this like. I didn't realize that my mom like really valued my hair because my hair is like curly and she always really really wanted curly hair because she feels like it like it's just more indicative of like um like afro-salvadoran women that she grew up with and like um more like native like Nahua people that she is also part of but her hair doesn't quite reflect that and the fact mm-hmm. that my hair was curly and was representative of that was really important to her wow um, like that's just like little things like that that you know you're you're also describing like the connection that your mom had to it and the connection that you have to it I also like I'm not going back to short hair now <laughs> like <laughs> it's it's a relationship that you grow with it and it's it was just really really cool to me but Ethan I just want to tell you that I, I connected to it in that way it's interesting that that you both also didn't know like you didn't realize that why it was important yeah. mm-hmm so with that being said, there's a connection between the girls who bully you and your hair, of course, revolving around the sticking gum in it or forcing you to compare hair with another classmate. There is a repeated Montauf I recognize throughout the first show that first shows up in the middle of your piece. When you say about your mother and your hair, the entangled mess may try with all its might to resist her, but in the end, she will win. I want to tell you, she always wins. And then at the end, when you tell your mother about the girls and say, finally, I gave her an answer, the truth. I fear my mother more than I feel fear popular girls. And now maybe they'll fear her too. Both feel a little more reluctant submission to your mother's influence. And I was wondering if you framed it that way purposely and why. Um, Honestly, when I wrote that piece, I hadn't realized I had framed it that way. It just made me realize that. Um, but growing up, I was I was always very scared of my mom because her she was the ruler of the household. Um, my dad was barely home because he was a truck driver, so he drove across the country, and we only saw him about like once a month. So everything was up to my mom, and. Um, I didn't want to cause any trouble. I was a firstborn. So I tried to keep quiet at home and at school. And when they, when I finally told my mom the truth about, you know, uh, what the girls had done, I also had to tell her what they had done previously um, to me throughout the school years. And instead of like really getting more mad at the other uh, students, I got in trouble because I never told her about it. Mm. So um, that pretty much made me shut up a little bit more. Um, I didn't mean to frame it in the way where it's like how you mentioned it, uh, but now looking at it, I think I I love it my piece a lot more. <laughs> Since I wrote this piece and submitted it, um, I haven't forgotten it. It's the only story I've ever like, it stays in my head and the reason for it is because it's the most vulnerable piece I've ever written. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the most like weightlifting thing ever because it was nice to remember something very like 
hurtful to me when I was a kid because I realized how much I had grown, mm -hmm. how far I had come. Mm -hmm. but yeah. I'm not sure if I answered your question correctly. Um, no. Great. All right. Um, connecting with back with that, like, you know, your growth as like a person, I wanted to ask, uh, you know, the story you mentioned that like you, you wish that they'll be your friends if like you let your hair down like they do. And like in the story up until that point, you didn't really seem like you wanted to defend your bullies. So the question is, did seven year old you want to defend your bullies or did you think that by doing what they want, they'll stop being mean to you? I think the answer is uh, both because it was a private school and I was poor. Um, so basically they had money. Um, some of them were Hispanic, and some of them like were white, um, but they clearly had money. They had good shoes, they had good backpacks and I didn't. So I always felt like an outcast and I felt like if they were my friends, um, it would kind of be like, easier to deal with at school. I could feel seen because I didn't feel seen in my own home um, and I didn't feel seen at school. So I really didn't want to be friends with them mm -hmm. because there were things that they were doing that was American and I was Mexican. Growing up, I didn't have many American friends and I really wanted to, to be able to be American because um, it was like, I guess how you say it, What's that word for assimilation? I think that's the right word. But basically, that's what I wanted to do. Um, uh, it was always felt like I was a barrier there, both class and you know ethnicity wise. So I didn't want to be there events because they they were popular and everyone talked to them, and I was just the one sitting at the corner of the lunch table with my mom's homemade food. Um, and then the other part was just like I wanted it all to end. Basically, um, I didn't want any trouble. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't know how long, how much longer I could take that because um, I also had a brother going to the same school. He was younger, but he wasn't being picked on. So um, I kind of wanted the same thing as him where he wasn't being picked on, you know, just kind of be happy and be friends with somebody. Um, I only had one friend and she was in a similar position that I was, but she wasn't bullied. I don't know what kind of the difference was until much later on uh, when I grew up. She was um, pale. She was a pale um, Ecuadorian, and I was, you know, a pretty tan kid. So, um, sorry. Um, yeah, I, it was both. I, I really wish I had been a little bit stronger, but I was a kid, so I, I just I wanted good memories. Oh, and I mean, they had parties, and I wanted to be a part of that, right, like, right. like where they actually invited me instead of their parents telling them, hey, invite all of your classmates, because you have to, rather than, you know, just invite your friends. Uh, it's perfectly natural for, like, for you to want to belong. I think any kid at any age, one that, especially at a young age, kids want to belong. They want to be popular. They want to be cool. They want to have fun and friends and all of that. And I think that, you know, your vulnerability in this piece of like really opening yourself up about your, the trauma that you faced as a child, essentially, you know, you connect with the reader. Because I know mm -hmm. a lot of kids, I think myself included, you know, we've all been picked on. 
and a lot of kids have gone through this type of you know bullying and like abuse from our peers and you know it's great to see that like you know you've grown from it and that you can look back on it as like even though you it was a troubling time and that you know you felt like you faltered under the weight of these kids pressure you've still come out and become like such a you know such a great person a strong person and resilient mm-hmm. yeah and i um i think you as a kid were a lot stronger than you think you you were yes mm-hmm. and i say that because you were able to get through everything they were throwing at you and you don't think about it negatively like mm-hmm. you look at it as a milestone in your life that you were able to grow from Mm -hmm. and really it helped shape who you are from what I can see like you said you love your hair you love that's connected to your heritage so I think you were a lot stronger as a kid than you think you were Mm -hmm. thank you I really appreciate it so it's such a specific experience to be from a different place and living in America or having a culture that is from a different place and living in America Mm -hmm. and to experience the world that you live in and like in a lot of ways like when when immigrants came and your parents were immigrants like to experience a place that you have only known your entire life and have everyone treat you as if you don't belong mm-hmm. as if you like as if you are just different and that there is nothing that can be done about it and because you are different you deserve to be you know on the other end of all this bullshit like it is it is such stories like this will never not like hit me because it's like whoa we really all went through that like that experience and it it like really sucks (laughs) there's like really no other way to put it other than like damn it sucks and I just want to like echo what Leija said in that like you're so much tougher as a kid that I think um you give yourself credit for and it's also really fucking cool that you can be an even tougher adult when you reflect on that kind of thing mm-hmm. and it and it's very powerful to be able to tell these stories because while you have the strength and you have the ability to speak your story not everybody does mm-hmm. and being able to hear somebody who comes from your background who's experienced what you've experienced and to sit there and listen to a story like yours to say oh my god i'm not alone is a very powerful thing to give to somebody and you have definitely done that with this piece Yes, and I know this is such a cliche thing to say, but our differences really make us unique. Like, I love that you have the attitude now of this is who I am, and I'm not going to let you define me just because you find me to be different from you. It's either you accept me as I am now or don't accept me at all. Right. And I know that you probably like, we've touched upon this in like different ways throughout like this whole conversation but lastly like what if anything would you like listeners to take away from this story that's there's a lot um 
One thing I would say is um, this was a kid, basically, with a bunch of pressure to assimilate into Milan because their parents were trying as well. And as a kid, you don't, you feel all this pressure. And as you grow up, you realize um, you don't have to take the entire weight on your shoulders. You have your family, you have other people. And at the end of the day, sometimes you can just drop some of the pressure on yourself. Um, I stopped trying to be the perfect daughter. Um, I cut off my hair because um, it just, it wasn't right for me because I wanted to lose connection with my mom. But when I finally let go of the resentment I had for her because of my hair, I was able to kind of like build a relationship with my mom again, but starting from scratch, basically. Right. Like I loved my mom, but I didn't know a single thing about her and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And so when we finally started communicating more, um, after I cut my hair, you know, I find out that her favorite color is yellow. And now I can't see the color yellow without thinking of her. Um, whenever I see any flowers at the supermarket, I get her some flowers that are yellow. And Aww. I could probably live in yellow now. <laughs> <laughs> But when you're a kid, you, like um, somebody mentions, you don't realize how strong you are. And I didn't realize how much um, I had to go through mm -hmm. as a child of an immigrant. Um, because I'm the firstborn, so it's like everything plays on you. Right. And for me, I thought bullying was something I had to figure out myself. Mm -hmm because I had my younger siblings to look strong for, and I had my parents to help. Um, I may not have paid bills as a kid, but like I, um, I had to translate documents for them. I had to push myself to read quicker, better, and understand two languages at the same time. Right. Um, and I wasn't very good in school. Um, I, that was another reason I was bullied. Um, I, I just couldn't get it. And my parents couldn't help me because they hadn't finished school themselves. Right. Um, and so I was, on, I was on my own. And I was too scared to ask teachers for help. Mm -hmm. And I was trying, they didn't know how smart I was in Spanish, basically. Right. Because Spanish was my first language. Mm -hmm. um, and I always thought English was, because you know, that's what school tells you. Yeah, English is your first language since you speak it so much in school. But I learned Spanish first. Um, I say to take away from this kind of piece, it's that you, yeah, you can grow. You can look back on your pieces and realize how much, um, what kind of mess up the world is when you grow up. Like looking back, but as a kid, it's it's pretty much all you know. Right. You just. You see all these things and you don't, you don't know how to handle them. And the only thing you can do is push through and hope someday it gets better. Mm -hmm. And it did in the end. Um, I'm really glad it did. We are too. We are too, for sure. Definitely. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you for bringing us this piece and thank you for letting us have a good cry. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you, Natalie.
That concludes our fifth episode of the sixth season, Growing Pains. We are also excited to bring you new stories soon, amplifying these voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear from. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes content. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, as well as our episode writers, our website developers, and everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon. And good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.